I want to tell you about an alternative way of using the uh, walking meditation. Now, in the beginning, we used um, a three-point movement that's uh, raising, carrying, putting down, just the movement. Now, then, I told you about a six-point movement. The six-point movement is more designed for one-pointed concentration unless we start counting mechanically one to six and not paying attention to the movement. So it is much better to stop counting as soon as you can and just watch the movement. Uh, it is, as far as the one-pointedness of the mind is concerned, more conducive to that than just uh, watching the three uh, different movements. There's another way of using walking meditation. There are many other ways. But there's one other way I want to mention now, and that's becoming aware of at least three of the four primary elements. And that can be quite interesting and keep the mind interested because everybody is very able to walk so it becomes a very mechanical process and the mind has every opportunity to go off and wandering. When we raise the foot, we can become aware of the air element. Not only does the foot go into the air and also it becomes lighter, but also the air or wind element has as its attribute movement. The wind moves, breath moves, so and in the air there's always movement. So that first thing that happens is the air element. Then as we do this, the, uh, it's in a three division, as we bring it forward, it's starting to feel heavy. The law of gravity is uh, taking its course. That's the water element. Water is extremely heavy. So the heaviness that comes, when you bring it forward, you can already feel that it actually wants to come down. Keeping it up in the air is a balancing act. So it's, it's against our natural inclination of putting it down, water element, and touching earth element. So those three are very, of course the fire element, their temperature can be noticed, but it's not necessary. Those three are really sufficient to go along with the three movements of raising, carrying forward, then touching, because the carrying forward has an element of coming down already. So you can notice those three elements. And being outside in the walking meditation, as long as the weather allows that, also helps one to be connected with those three elements with the elements around us. The less separation and the less individuality we feel, the easier it is to become concentrated. Because all we're thinking about is individual. That's our own thoughts and our own ideas and own hopes and plans and worries and fears and problems and all the things are concerned with me. But when we realize that it's all together and the elements within us are the elements around us and there isn't such a separation from 
our surroundings and from other people, it's much easier to have concentration. Also, you may have noticed that the moment, just the moment when there is total mindfulness, that means one really knows one is moving the foot and nothing else. There's no problem. One can't have mindfulness and problems at the same time. It doesn't matter what the weather is like, it doesn't matter what the food is like, it doesn't matter what the knees are like, there's just movement. So if you've experienced it even one second, it should give rise to the urgency of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the heart of Buddhist meditation. It's not the goal, nor is it all of it, but it lies at the heart of it. Because if we don't pay attention, well, then we're doing the same thing we're always doing in the world. We just pay attention to what we need for survival or what gives us pleasure. But here we pay attention to what is. And the moment we really do that, and if you do it outside of the meditation hall, paying attention to whatever happens, like washing dishes or hanging up clothes or whatever it might be, it's a very pleasant task. The mindfulness that is connected with the task does not allow like or dislike. It does not allow an achievement syndrome. It does not allow hoping for results. It just is. So I'm um, urging you again, use mindfulness and become aware of its benefits. And you can in the walking meditation, which you might like to do also some of it in your individual meditation time, try it out with the elements, which are then, of course, not only in you, but around you. There's all that around you. The water element is still very easy to see. It's all over the place. And of course, air, we wouldn't live without it. And earth, we couldn't live without that either. That's another consideration, which is also important to establish in one's mind. We'd all be dead without air and earth and water. We couldn't live. We're dependent upon those elements, that they are around us, not just in us. Because we consist of them, we need them in order to keep alive. So look at them outside of yourself and see how connected you are. We couldn't live any length of time at all without the air, very little time without the water, a little longer without the earth because we've got stored food, but not very much. So the earth keeps giving us the food, the water, of course we need that to replenish what we lose from our own body, it's got to be always almost 80%, so whatever comes out got to go in. And the air, well we can't breathe without it, can we? So look at those three elements and in walking it's possible <clears throat> to see them clearly within oneself and around one. It's very, it makes it maybe a little more interesting because walking meditation very often becomes mechanical. 
it's very easy to see when it becomes mechanical. And uh, so when you feel it becoming mechanical, stop a moment, stand still a moment, and start again. Are there any questions about this one? Yes, you should look at your dead body or at this dying body or this already decaying body that's lying there dead or whatever your imagination allows. And um, you see that the mind, namely its karma component, is getting to be reborn. That must not be understood to be you, yourself. The person you know, this one, the one you see in the mirror and the one that you know with all its difficulties and with all its uh, beauties, that one is going to die. This one is never going to be there again. Karma components, yes, but this person, no. Yes. You might call it that way if you like. The word consciousness is a particular term in the Buddhist terminology, but you can call it that way if you like. Yes. And a person does not really represent consciousness. Yes. The consciousness in Buddhist terminology is something entirely different. Well, say that the individual mind that you think you have, which knows who you are, that one's going to die. That one's going to be dead as a doornail. <laughs> and all the hopes and, and wishes for immortality which have been established in religions and in spiritual paths and all the ideas about it that have been embedded in the human uh, ideas of how it could be, it's all just a wish. It's all just a wish to make something very solid which is totally transparent. Yes? Well, I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> I might be able to meet a beloved, a beloved. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which beloved, but a beloved. <laughs> See, the hard and fast rules which have been established by the establishment, I can assure you, they don't, they don't uh, really have any um, basis in fact. They are just to comply with what people wish. And that is again another establishment. So if we are complying with your wishes, you've got to support us. You'll be fine because that's what we're going to give you. The whole thing doesn't really work. And we have seen that, especially in our century, we have seen that it doesn't work particularly. Yes. Gravity. The law of gravity. No, but yet now, when I was talking about it now, when I was explaining it for the walking meditation, something? Gravity. 
I can't at uh, the moment remember what it could have been. But it's enough if you, if you think of the heaviness that water has and um, that you can feel that the foot actually, while it's still in the air, really wants to go down. And that's the law of gravity which is pulling us down, which has to do also with the heaviness. And if we were totally light, we could probably float around here somewhere, but we aren't. We're fairly heavy, so yep, it goes down. Where, what element? Yes. Yes. Well, it can be the earth element if you've eaten too much. That's food. But the natural heaviness in us, it's 80% water. Just under 80% were water. That's a heavy, heavy load to carry around. And it's got to be balanced too, it can't be any more than that percentage. Because then you get sick. But it can be earth element, if one eats too much, it's earth element. Yes. when the body is concentrated, the mind is concentrated. Ah, The only thing that can concentrate is the mind. Impossible. Not really. When the mind is really concentrated, the body feels light. Mm -hmm. From concentration? The feeling of solidity of the body can be there. When the beginning of concentration, there's a feeling of really being, being solid and settled and unmoving. Well, that's just having that the mind has stopped rummaging around and therefore the body also has a feeling of not being all over the place but being all in one place. But when the concentration becomes very strong, the body feels light. Not heavy, but that's the beginning, yes, when you sit down. That's why one should find a way to sit down which is conducive to that feeling, because you can get that just by sitting. Just by sitting, one can feel the solidity. But that's all of it together, yes. Earth, sure. The earth element is all that which is solid in us, but the water element, of course, has enormous influence on that because it's so much of it. So the water and the earth element, the fire and the air element, they all work together. This body can't stay alive without this one missing. So we feel the earth element more because we have the touch sensation. But if you start crying, you can feel the water element because you've got a touch sensation then. And um, the water element, we don't feel so much. We feel the earth element more. But the both, both together give that sense of heaviness and solidity. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yes, one could, couldn't one? <laughs> it's not usually connected that way. It's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> because somebody gets very angry, gets fiery, huh? Yes. No, uh, you see, the uh, four elements are not connected to anything pertaining to mind. They are strictly body. See, we've got four elements for the body and four for the mind. And I'm not going to um, um, bother you with the 89 elements of the mind which are mentioned in the Abhidhamma, because nobody can remember that, including me, I can't either. So, four of mind and four of body. And so these, the fire element that we talk about, the body, is strictly body. It's the heat in the body, it's the destruction, it's the, the, the generation, generation of the destruction, it's the uh, digestion, all that, it's the fire element. And anger pertains to mind. So if you get too hot, right, you could get angry. But that's the mind reacting. That's not the fire element. There's a fire element at that time might be a trigger. The mind's reacting to the heat. Says it's awful, I don't like it here, I'm going. So that would be a trigger for it. But it's not an, a component of it. It's a trigger, but not a component. Okay? <laughs> Everything you've ever done. <laughs> All the karma, but it's totally impersonal. It's not going to be called yes. It's totally impersonal. It has nothing to do with the person. They're just karma, karmic results. That's all. That's the, the whole thing. That's that's all it is. And because of the the craving to be, it, it results in rebirth consciousness. But it hasn't got any personality. We give it the personality. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knows? I haven't got a clue <laughs> how they're held together. <laughs> I haven't got a clue how the karma components are held together. <laughs> no, it's a question that comes up over and over again. They're not held in the mind. They are that which the mind consists of. Well, what the rebirth consciousness consists of. The rebirth consciousness consists of the karma component. That's all it consists of, nothing else. The rebirth consciousness is that which is available for rebirth. And it has nothing in it except the karma resultants, we can say. It's got nothing to do with you. Nothing. Although you have generated it, in this life. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. The next person might be called uh, John and will remember nothing about Jeff. Well, one should, yes. One should feel responsible. But it's not an individuality where we can look at some immortality. True, one should feel, feel responsible that John isn't going to have such a terrible time because we gave him so bad karma resultants. But the most responsibility one has in this life. That you have, that you know, that you're going to get this time. And there you have a much uh, greater responsibility. One can, can think of this future John and say, well, 
I'd be nice to this fellow and behave myself nicely. But it doesn't really work, does it? One usually does everything for oneself. On what? How the karma is being held together? <laughs> Nothing belongs to you. No, mind is a, is a, is a, of course a concept, all words are concepts. Every, every single word we ever use is a concept. Of course that's a concept, the word mind. Well, not the way you know it now. Because you don't have the senses, you see. When, when at this point in time we have the senses, and the mind responds constantly to the senses, including the touch of the body. Now that is going to be gone. That's going to be six foot under the ground. So the mind has nothing to do with that at all. So all it consists of is karma resultants. Maybe a better word than components, karma resultants. That's all it consists of. And as it consists of those, it has the rebirth consciousness in it because one of the karma resultants is craving to be. But there's no person in it. And karma has no person in it ever. Totally impersonal. But you see, what you're trying to do is not very useful. There are two levels of understanding. There are like two railway lines that never cross. One is a level of understanding on the, the level of our everyday life, where there's obviously somebody called Jeff, which is me, in your case, and there's obviously somebody called John somewhere else, who is also a me, and there's obviously 30 different me sitting on pillows, and everybody wanting to have very good meditation. Well, obviously that's quite true, isn't it? And there's a house, and there are trees, and there are frogs, and there's weather, and there's all sorts of things, and food, and all that is on the level of the ordinary way of thinking, a reality. So we call that the relative reality. Now, with the standpoint of the relative reality, you're trying to understand absolute reality. It isn't possible. Absolute reality is the other railway line, or the other level. And it doesn't run alongside of this one. It doesn't even run on the same height. It's somewhere else. If you look at the railway line, the everyday one, which is down here on the floor, then the other one runs along there on the beam. And you can't use this one to understand that one. It doesn't make sense. Because at this point in time, you know Jeff is making karma, and Jeff has a mind, and Jeff is doing this and that. You know all that, and it's true. On the relative level of understanding, it's absolutely true, but it's not the absolute level. On the absolute level, there's something entirely different going on. But the two don't join up. We've got to climb up there and look at it from there. And then we see this one and say, oh yes, of course. No. It's only preparing the consciousness to have eventually the ability to see the absolute level. The jhana is not an absolute level. The jhana is only a preparation for the mind. 
In the beginning, certainly. It is, it is concerned with the personal experience. But it uh, eventually uh, explains without a shadow of a doubt to anyone who's got the slightest bit of intelligence that there's something else. And when that has happened, that something else can also happen. And that takes one to the absolute level. The absolute level? You mean the experience of it in this life? In the first ones, yes. The first... Well, senses, you meaning the sense contact, actually you can say no to that. It, is, it does not rely on sense contact of any sort. There's no sense contact in the jhanas at all. I mean, you don't, you don't uh, at the time you have them, you don't hear, see, taste, touch and smell. Those senses, no. The ordinary sense level is this. Um, why don't you allow me to get on with teaching where all this will be explained step after step on a gradual level where we, I'm sure I will come to exactly that because it's part of it, but it takes a few days. In fact, it usually takes a few lifetimes to get there. But here, it takes me a few days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> absolute level of reality is a totally different viewpoint, a completely different viewpoint. And it's got nothing to do with jumping out of one's body. It's got even nothing to do with jumping out of one's mind. It's just a totally different viewpoint which is embedded through a personal experience. But uh, and the, the, the jhanas are the pathway which the Buddha himself trod to get an inkling of different levels of consciousness and that therefore being able to give up this relative level through an, an experience so that the relative level no longer seems to be the, the one that has the truth in it. Again I must say, will you allow me to please <laughs> start teaching step by step? Because there's no way that this is going to make any sense to anybody unless there is a graduated path. And the graduated path is the way the Buddha taught, step by step. Now I'm sure the things you have heard so far have made at least some sense to you because it's gradual, little by little. And we're going to get to all those things also, little by little. And we have enough time in this course so that I can talk about them and uh, explain them. But if they are built up on the previous level, they don't seem to be so otherworldly. 
they make sense they are based on uh, either a personal experience or they're based on a logical explanation where at this time they're really sort of up in the air somewhere aren't they so we, we need to have step by step and we're going to get back to the step where we're at yes that's the step where we're at <laughs> no Mm. You might what? Yes. Mm. No, 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 not at all. No, no, that's wrong thinking. You see, we have to, if we have any kind of social conscience, and any decent person does have social conscience. We have to alleviate suffering at the level where people are at. So if you... Uh, <laughs> I saw a nice sentence the other day in an excellent book, by the way, Who Dies? by Stephen Levine. And he said, what use is it to tell uh, a Jewish woman in Brooklyn dying in the Brooklyn hospital about the Tibetan bardo? I mean, he's right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to her. You know, tell her that her children love her. So, the level where one is at, that's where the help is needed. Obviously, this lady in the Brooklyn Hospital dying of cancer, she doesn't want to know about the Tibetan bardo. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to her, but she wants to know whether her children are all right. Hmm? So, if you have a, a social worker and you're relieving the suffering of people that don't have any food or don't have any job or don't have been bashed about or whatever it is by showing a different situation for them, that's exactly what they need at that time. And that's a relief of suffering for them. Now, having been relieved of the particular suffering that they were suffering at the time, you, there is a possibility that they may actually look for a spiritual opening also. They may or they may not. It's entirely up to them, right? But, for instance, the Buddha once gave a uh, discourse and he, had, and he had come particularly because he knew there were quite a number of people who needed to know about what he was going to tell them. And he looked around and one of the um, listeners said to him that a certain man was missing. And he also wanted to hear the discord. And he was missing because his cow had gone astray. And he had to run after that cow and find it again because he's a poor farmer. And if he loses the cow, he's going to really lose part of his livelihood. And would the Buddha wait with the discord till the man come, uh, could come? And the Buddha said, yes. So he waited. And then this man came all out of breath, you know, running and excusing himself and everything. And the Buddha said to him, have you eaten? And the man said, no, 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 I came running quite quickly. He said, then eat your lunch first and then come and listen. It's useless to listen when you're hungry because you'll be too distracted. So first thing first, the man first ate his lunch and then he listened to the discourse. Now, all right, he already had the interest to listen, which you people probably haven't, but that doesn't matter. First thing first. First the relief of suffering on that level. 
and the Buddha tried to relieve suffering on the uh, complete level. Alright? They're suffering on all levels. First thing. They're basic, they're first. <laughs> well, I'll start on what I was going to talk about and see how far I get with it. And uh, it's quite true that we were on the point of Dukkha. And we do need that penetration of Dukkha that I mentioned last night, where we see it as an all-embracing factor of existence, including trees that are being chopped down including um, flowers that wilt, including us that are wilting under certain conditions, is Dukkha. Dukkha is. But again, and I want to repeat this, is a very important point. If we finally see the universality of Dukkha, we don't suffer so much from it much easier because we don't have that feeling of that we personally are singled out for having difficulties or that somebody made it particularly awful for us we don't ever get that feeling anymore it just is and as we know that it just is there's a lightness of feeling a buoyancy it just is it's everywhere the stars disappear. They just they break up and they're gone. Finished. Well, who knows? I don't whether that hurts or not. So everywhere we look, there is destruction, there is dukkha. Only then will we have a real entry into the next step. And again, there are 12 steps. And some of these steps will have... Um, uh, other divisions in them also that will probably wind up, up with more than two of them. But the next step after Dukkha is called Faith and Confidence. And I have already mentioned it here and there. It's an absolute necessity. And the necessity lies in the fact that if we don't have faith and confidence in what we're doing, we can't do it well. It doesn't matter what it is. Now we don't have to think that we need to be perfect. That is an achievement syndrome. And that achievement syndrome is unfortunately very widespread in the West. Even in Australia, where people are not so... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, like in America where they always have time is money and all that where they're more laid back here but it's still very widespread this achievement syndrome and it usually starts in our lives sometimes even with the parents but certainly in school where we are graded we're told how stupid we are or sometimes how intelligent we are so we have this sort of thing in a very deep um, measure in our psyche and if we have it a little bit too much 
it creates an awful lot of anxiety. It makes life terribly difficult. And you know there's one particular danger about an achieve, the achievement syndrome, and that is to translate that into the spiritual path. Shogyan Trumpa had a wonderful word for that, spiritual materialism. He wrote a book with that title. Um, I must admit I've forgotten the content of the book, but I've never forgotten the title. It's a perfect title. When we want to achieve something in spirituality, it's a foregone conclusion that this is a lost cause. There is nothing to achieve. But yet, because we're so ingrained with this achievement uh, thing, we bring it in with us to the meditation. I've got to get to the third jhana. Or my friend can already do four, or something like that. <laughs> By the way, the Buddha said one can become enlightened even after the first one. So, there's no, no idea at all of having this, that, or the other. Or, uh, I'm going to sit through this and not move an inch, because... Uh, I've seen other people, they sit still, you know, and I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to sit. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's not, not useful. So I'd like to warn against that. And also create um, an, a feeling of disquiet. And as it creates that feeling of disquiet within, sort of um, not peaceful, it's uh, detrimental to the meditation. So the whole thing it works against itself. It doesn't bring anything useful. But what we do need is the letting go of the preconceived notion of what meditation should bring us, how we should go about it, the preconceived notions of the resultants that it uh, has and within those preconceived notions we also have opinions about the whole thing. We have an opinion about the other people, we have an opinion about the teachers, we have an opinion about meditation halls. All these things are detrimental because the only way that we can get into the reality that we have within is by letting go of all that. Nothing. No opinions, no viewpoints, just being there. Now that's very easily said, but it is bound up, completely bound up with faith and confidence. If I have faith in myself, I know that I've got enough wisdom to know what I'm doing. So I, I'm here because I know what I'm doing. And I don't have to rummage around in my head trying to figure out if I should have gone somewhere else. I've got enough confidence in my own wisdom to know this is it, I know what I'm doing. As long as there's constantly this nagging in the mind, maybe there's something easier, better, more complete, um, easier to get at, my friends like better, whatever the mind says, there's no giving of oneself. 
And if one doesn't give oneself, one can't get a thing. One's got to give oneself completely to the meditation practice. Now, the Buddha did not advocate blind faith. He gave a very nice simile. He said, faith is like a huge blind giant. And this blind giant meets up with a small, very sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom. And the blind giant says to the sharp-eyed cripple, Look, I'm very strong, but I can't see. You're quite weak, but you have very sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulder. Together we'll go far. We, all, we always say to that, that blind faith can move mountains. But unfortunately, being blind doesn't know which mountain needs moving. So we have to have faith coupled with wisdom. And so we often use the word confidence for that. But it's not as strong a word. It's not as strong and not as impactful as the word faith and trust. The word faith and trust, when we take away the word blind from all that, are part of our heart connection. The connecting of the heart to that what we're actually doing. If we don't connect with the heart, but only stay in the mind, we haven't got a chance. If we only connect with the heart and don't understand with the mind, we haven't got a chance either. We consist of both. We have heart and mind. That's why the Buddha said, faith and wisdom. One is heart, one is mind. And having both, we need to use both. That means, first we need to understand, really understand, what this is all about, this teaching, where we can change our approach, how to do it, the methodology, and not only how, but why to do it. There is nothing that I've ever come across personally that is that explicit. It explains in the smallest detail how and why. That's all we need to know. We need to know how to do it, obviously, but we also need to know why we want to do it. Because if we're not clear on why we want to do something, we're going to stop very quickly. That's why children have such a hard time cleaning their teeth every morning, every evening, because they don't understand why. It's only because mother says, go and clean your teeth, but they don't know that they're going to lose them if they don't do that. So they have objections and they try to get away without cleaning teeth, just as we try to get away without meditating at home. But once we know why and how, there should be no reason to try to get away without doing it.
So the logical, rational understanding is our mind connection and it's entirely necessary to have that. Many of us, if not all of us, have suffered from, in the past, from being told to do something that we couldn't possibly understand why we should be doing it on the religious level. Or we have actually refused to do it because it wasn't logical or rational. So there is that part of us which needs to be satisfied too. The logical, rational part of us has to be satisfied because if it isn't, we're going to fall off it again. We're going to think about it and say, no, I can't accept that. I can't understand it, so why should I need to do it? That part of us is very strong because we use our logical, rational mind also the abstract thinking mind for all the things that are concerned with livelihood and everyday living. So it's a very strong part of us and it is very important to satisfy that part. But it's not enough. We have to also get the heart connection. Because we don't get the heart connection, we can't leave logical rational mind behind and actually experience a third dimension a third dimension which is transcending. And this is what all this, what we're talking about, is leading to, of course. I'm using all, all the ordinary, everyday experiences that we have in order to show that they're not sufficient so that we can actually find our way to transcend that. And when we have seen one level, we can then use that as our springboard to transcend. So the heart connection is absolutely essential. Now the heart connection is something that very often is uh, used by gurus um, and is also quite strong in blind beliefs, blind faith. But again, on its own, it's not sufficient. It needs the support system of the mind connection. Now the heart connection means that we start loving what we're doing. Loving because we have understood that's the only thing that really is going to get us out of Dukkha. We don't love it because our senses are uh, pleased. That is also used quite often. The pleasing of the senses. We can please our senses out there in the world as much as we like. In a well-to-do society such as ours, all of us can make enough money to buy what we want. We can uh, get um, sense gratification any time we want. Some of us have more money, can get it easier, some have less, it doesn't really matter, we can all get it. We can see, hear, taste, touch, smell what's pleasant. So that is not where the heart connection should come from on the spiritual path. Not from what we see and what we hear and what we taste and touch and smell. And not even from that what we think. It needs to come from our own feeling. And that can only arise when there is enough wisdom in the mind to recognize truth when we hear it. When we recognize truth for ourselves, and everybody has to have their own wisdom. Nobody can teach wisdom. The only thing that one can teach is knowledge. And that's what I'm doing.
when we hear or read or are concerned with a teaching such as this, and it becomes apparent to us that there is not only truth in it from the standpoint where we're at now, but there, there's, there's something in it which can lead us out of the situation we're in now, then the heart connection has to stop. And that is the love of the Dhamma, the love of the teaching. And the love of the teaching is something which when it wants it has arisen. It's a kind of love that is, I've never seen it disappear in anyone. But it doesn't arise for everyone. Because the heart isn't open enough. There's constantly the rational mind behind it saying, yeah, but. And that, yes, but, is skeptical doubt. And skeptical doubt is called the fifth hindrance. In Pali, skeptical doubt is called Vitikicca. I think the word is very indicative of the actual thing, isn't it? It sounds like, you know, this or that. Um, a skeptical doubt is against the opening of the heart. Now, very often people have, in their youth, opened their hearts and were disappointed. But who did they open them to, or whom, or what? Another person. Another person who is just as deluded as they themselves. So why shouldn't one be disappointed? In fact, the disappointment is actually another delusion. But opening one's heart to the highest ideal and truth, disappointment is totally impossible. But there people make another mistake. They look at somebody that they know or have heard of, who supposedly knows everything and has done everything and then they are not pleased with the results and then they say, oh, it can't be any good because that person didn't have the results. But that's foolish, isn't it? Each person only gets the results that they have worked for. That's cause and effect. That's not the teaching. So the teaching has to be looked at in its own beauty and purity, and then to see, can I love that? Can I feel that real opening of my heart where I'm devoted to it? Now that devotion always translates into action, always. We have the feelings that we have within us, which are real and which are really strong, they always translate into action. If we hate something, we try to get away from it. And if we love something, we try to get near it. It's an automatic reaction. And those people who are really devoted to the teaching and really love it with all their hearts, they try to help it along and promote it. They never fail. They always try to be there to do something so that it becomes more flourishing. Without this love and devotion, our heart connection is not there. And if our heart connection isn't there, it doesn't work. Now, I'll tell you a story how it should not be done and how it's so often done. In the time of the Buddha, there was a monk who was so infatuated with the Buddha, loved him so much, 
and was so devoted to him that he followed him around like a puppy dog. Wherever the Buddha went, this monk went. And one day this monk got sick and had to take to his bed. And as he was lying in bed, he started crying. So the other monks came to see him and said, Well, why are you crying? You're not that sick. What's the matter? You're not hurting that badly, is it? He said, No, no, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying because I can't go and see the Buddha now. And so I'm lying in bed. And the monk said, Oh, well, that's easily fixed. We'll tell him about that and he'll come and see you. So they told the Buddha that this monk was sick and was crying. And the Buddha said, Yes, I'll come and see him. So he went to see the sick monk. And he asked him about his health and uh, told him about the decay and disease of the body. And then he said to him, Who sees me? Sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma? Sees me. And the monk understood. When he got well again, he didn't follow him around anymore like a puppy dog, but practiced more. Who sees the Buddha, the teacher, the guru, should only see one thing, namely the Dhamma, the teaching, that's all. And who actually sees the teaching in Jesus, seeing him here, that person sees actually the Buddha, because the Buddha means enlightenment, that's all. Not a person. In other words, the Buddha was very much against having the devotion personalized. Now that did not prevent people from being um, enraptured by the Buddha's personality. He had most likely what we nowadays call charisma. I must imagine that that's what he had to a great degree because the kings and the ministers and the princes, they all followed him. So it did not prevent that, that people were enraptured by his personality. But he again and again warned them because that's the guru system which is in existence even today in India and one can be very misled because we don't have enough understanding of absolute reality to know exactly what's going on inside of another person so we can be easily misled so the Buddha again and again said not the person, not the guru, the teacher and that is where our devotion, our wholehearted giving up ourselves should lead us. Obviously, some people are engaged in the business of um, propagating the teaching. That is another source where one can have a helpfulness, but the devotion goes to the teacher. And if one has that, if one has that feeling that here is something that is real, here is something I can do, the confidence, the self-confidence. There's something I can do. There's something that is other than what the world provides. Then the heart stops to And that makes it possible to have this complete connection. Because if we're not really connected, how can we expect results? It's not possible. We've got to be totally connected. And uh, sometimes people say it's like being plugged into it. That's when one really practices. You can't forget it anymore because you're practicing it. It doesn't, doesn't mean that we 
sit there trying to figure out what were those five theory collections and how was I supposed to be mindful? Nothing like that. It just flows because there is a complete connection. If we have a relationship with another person and we are not connected, properly connected, we might only understand the other person but don't have the heart connection. Well, obviously the relationship is lacking in something most vital. But by the same token, if we have the heart connection but can't understand what that other person is all about, well, it's also lacking something vital, isn't it? It lacks the mind connection. So it's a half-hearted connection. And this half-heartedness leads to a half-hearted relationship. Well, this is a half-hearted relationship that most people, unfortunately, in the world have with the spiritual teaching, with the Dhamma. A half-hearted relationship. Because everything else seems more important, this comes at the end. It doesn't seem that way any longer when the heart is open to it. Unfortunately, it usually only opens when there have been personal results. And um, so the only thing I can say at this point is have patience. Because when the personal results come, then we don't have to believe anything, nothing. Then we know, aha, it really is that. And that is then when people really become imbued with the fullness of it. Now there are people, and I know them myself, who are devoted without having such very visible results. They are results which are more subdued, more subtle, that they can feel. And they are still completely devoted. This heart connection to the practice of meditation is an essential aspect. And that's why in this depend arising it comes before the Buddha starts talking about meditation. First this, then that. Knowing Dukkha as it is, gaining faith and confidence in that which is not anymore on the worldly level, but can lead us out of the worldly level. He promises that. He says, there's only one thing I teach, and that's Dukkha and its end to reach. And with that faith and confidence, we can look at upon ourselves as if we were children taking the hand of the mother that leads us across a busy street. As a small child, we don't know whether we can go or not. We can be run over. Mother knows. So we take the hand and follow. If we should pull ourselves away from the hand, it can be quite dangerous. The child should get run over. But unfortunately, we are not more children anymore and have to a great degree lost the sense of childish wonder and newness, which is a great help in this on the spiritual path. And having lost this sense of childish wonder and newness, we use our own opinions and viewpoints. And would I give a discourse on opinions and viewpoints? I always quote that. It's called the Brahmachala Sutta. It's the first discourse on the, in the long collection, in the Diganikaya. And in it he gives headings, 62 headings, for all the views which are possible in human beings. 
and every single one of them is wrong. And why is every single one of them wrong? Not because they're stupid, they're not stupid. Because they're basing each view on the concept, on the delusion of this is me. That's why the view can never be absent, only relative. And when we use our relative viewpoints and opinions for the training that we have here for the absolute, it doesn't work. It just doesn't come together. The two just have no connection. And therefore, the heart connection has to start. Because the heart is not judging. It's the mind that judges. It's the mind that is judging jury. The heart is either closed and cold or open and warm. And if it's open and warm and devoted and giving, it doesn't judge a thing, it just does. One of my um, pet sentences is not so much thinking, more doing. And um, Sister Teresa of Calcutta says, not so much thinking, more loving. They're both meaning the same thing. And that, when, when we think too much, we, ha- we can come into all sorts of problems. The mind, as I told you, is a magician. It can do anything. But the heart can do two things. It either loves or it doesn't love. So it's very simple. And the more we can relate to that, what we have in our heart, and I will talk about that in detail, about this possibility of the heart education tonight, the more we relate to it, the more we connect to that, the easier everything is. Not only meditation, everything. Because we don't have to be upset, resisting, rejecting, worried, fearful. We don't have to do any of that. We can just have that feeling of loving. Here, for the meditation, we can't do without. In the world, sure, people do without it everywhere. They do it uh, on a very selective basis. But here, meditation, it doesn't work without. Now, this evening, I will talk in more detail about that particular aspect of us, which will then still... I like to keep this straight so that you know which step we're at. Whereas the second step of the transcendental dependent arising, which is called faith and confidence, first one was Dukkha, second one is faith and confidence, and as a subheading, it still belongs to that second step. We will talk, I will talk tonight about the um, way the Buddha looked upon love and compassion. So, now you can ask some questions. Well, it's a contradiction what you're saying there. Because the minute you see that your desire is the cause for your suffering, I'm sure you want to get rid of it. You want to voluntarily suffer? Thank you. 
yes, if you want to accept suffering, but you want to make itself uh, induce suffering more and more, you don't have to have desires to have suffering because desires are only one aspect of our suffering. And the basic cause is our craving to be. And that you can only get rid of when you have seen Nibbana. So desires, if you see that, and that's very important, you're quite right on that point, very important, when you can see that your personal desires are causes for suffering, you will undoubtedly take steps to reduce those desires. Sure. So what are you going to do? Be enlightened now. The only choice you have is be enlightened now. That's the only other choice, the only other option you have. There is no other option. Either you become enlightened right this minute, or you've got to work on it little by little by little. And that is the pathway, which means that when we actually realize the fact that our desires cause our suffering, that we, every time we are suffering, we actually notice the suffering because most people don't notice the subtle underlying suffering. When you notice the suffering, that's the time to drop it. Time to drop it? Yes, the time to drop it when you notice that you're suffering from a particular desire. And eventually it becomes more and more apparent that the whole thing is bound up in that. But first you've got to start first things first. So drop a desire which creates suffering. And having done that, you see, oh, it works. That creates suffering. But you're not, you mean uh, that you have done that in the past, but have you used a step-by-step method? Sorry? Yes, well, you see, the Buddha's way is step-by-step. Each step brings you the satisfaction, at least that you know it. You know the step. And then that you're trying that step. And that this is a step that you can do. Because what you're saying, um, not, not uncommon, but um, pie in the sky. That can't be done. There isn't any pie in the sky. It just doesn't work. Step by step, first things first. Sitting, meditating, loving kindness. Little by little, contemplating your own death, walking meditation, seeing the, the element. Every step on the way brings a different reality. And that's how it works. And it does work, but very slowly. Uh, 
um, the, the word intuition is a bit misused in our language. We use it a bit too much. But contemplation is intuitive thinking. Contemplation is not rational and um, logical Because logically, it's quite all right to say, okay, I'm going to die, so what? Right? I mean, that's logic. Everybody knows they're dying, so what? So let's get on with something nice. But intuitive thinking shows one, aha, there's something I've got to know now. I've got to realize that this death is within me. So that's intuitive thinking. That's no longer the logic of the everyday person. So intuitive thinking helps one very much. It's, for instance, as something difficult for the mind to understand, the intuition sometimes takes over and says, that's the way it is. I have experienced that. It goes down to the feeling level. It connects the feeling level with the mind. And that's where the intuitive thinking comes from. And also, you can see, for instance, uh, painters use that intuitive um, relationship because they've got to know what colors and what the, what the brushes to, to use. But on that level, they're not painting. They're painting from a connection to their feelings. So that's very much uh, a great help if one can do that. You can't always do it. There are levels in our everyday life where that just doesn't work. But the more one can do it, the easier everything is. Very helpful. Yes. Again, from a standpoint of absolute reality, an enlightened one doesn't have to want to cultivate the wholesome. He can't do anything else. He only cultivates the wholesome. So at that level, there's no wanting. Okay, it can't do anything else. But at our level of um, where we're sitting on this floor here, not hanging on the rafters, at that level, we have to be sure that we build a foundation of goodness within. And that foundation of goodness is like a rock on which we can, uh, or like a springboard from which all the other things then arise. Because the teaching of the Buddha has the three divisions of Sila, Samadhi and Panya. Sila, moral conduct, virtue, Samadhi, concentration, Panya, wisdom, insight. And we can actually look at it this way, that there has to be that foundation. To cultivate the wholesome and to let go of the unwholesome, it has both in it. You have to let go of the unwholesome, which is a letting go. And that letting go of the unwholesome is intrinsically connected with letting go of the ego's um, desire. Because the unwholesome, if you check it out, it is always connected with I want it for myself. Or I want sense of application. So that's a very letting go aspect of that. 
And as one lets go of the unwholesome, one has no other choices than to cultivate the wholesome. And if the mind has that in, as an idea, I want to cultivate the wholesome, it has to have the same, at the same time, the idea, I have to let go of the unwholesome. Because the two belong together. So it's a perfectly good idea to have, and it's a perfectly good determination to have, and the whole business of not having any wanting anymore, that's the prerogative of the other. As long as we want the right thing, we're doing fine. In the meditation, we've got to let go. Nobody can meditate against us. So we've got to let go at least temporarily. So that's I would say it's a um, uh, must for us to let go temporarily. But permanently, that will have to wait. The Arahant, the Enlightened One. The Arahant, the Enlightened One, wants nothing because there's nobody there to want anything. <laughs> highly developed people whose minds are so uh, strong and pure can make their time of death happen. Ordinary people know. There are people who can do it, but ordinary people know. So what you're looking at with these um, people that you're caring for is um, a karmic situation that has arisen who knows out of what causes and the only thing one can do is to try and make them as comfortable as possible. There's nothing else to be done, especially when their minds don't function anymore. But there's always a little bit, because when there's life, there is something. So one can try to make them as comfortable as possible. And I have heard also, I, I don't know from my own knowledge, but I have heard that even though they don't respond, to anything that they do um, take in what is being done and said. So it's quite important to be kind and loving even though they don't seem to notice anything. I, I have no personal experience of that. I have no personal experience of it. But that's so it is often said. The Buddha did not talk about it. He said none of that has any bearing on, on your getting enlightened. So you wouldn't talk about such things. But it is often said like that. But really, the only thing to do is for us to um, have the pathway where life becomes 
um, something that is easily handled and even though there's dukkha everywhere and where the enlightenment experience at least becomes a possibility whether other people are going to determine their birth the basic underlying dukkha is the same for all living beings there are some exceptional tragedies on top of that but the basic underlying dukkha is the same for everyone and that should help one to, con- to arouse compassion for others. So one doesn't think any longer that it's uh, just poor me, or that one has to be in a situation where people are starving before one can arouse compassion. Everybody has to be. There's no person except no living being. None. Even those with smiling faces. <laughs> 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 